Hello, welcome to Hope Church Harrogate's Message of the Week. If you'd like to connect with us, please head over to hopeharrogate.co.uk forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you. Good morning. Who'd like to hear about God saving me from a very embarrassing situation? So there I was yesterday, eating my lunch with my family. Afternoon, all planned out. I was uh, going to be speaking at a wedding, which started at 2.30. And uh, Jess and the kids were going to drop me off, go into town. And as I'm eating my lunch at 20 past one, in a little bit of a rush, because we need to leave the house at 20 to two, so I can be at the church for two, so I can get mic'd up and set, a voice said in my head, how confident are you? that the wedding starts at 2.30. And I said to the voice, quite confident, and then I thought, hang on a second, that didn't sound like my voice. And so I ran upstairs, I opened my laptop, I'm scrolling through the email conversation. There is no time in the email thread. I'm like, it's on the running order, that's where it was. I get, open the service sheet, the running order on the front page, there's no time at this moment. You know how I'm feeling, don't you? I'm like, Lord, come. Return, Jesus, now. And uh, and I'm in my phone, and I'm scrolling through my messages uh, from the bride. And the very first message I get says that the wedding starts at 2 o'clock and not at 2.30. And I'm like, oh, pants. Jess, kids, I've got to get ready. I'm like, I'm not even changed. I'm like throwing my suit on. I'm gelling my hair, cleaning my teeth, trying desperately not to spill it down my brand new shirt, which I bought for the occasion, dashing out the house. Then we lived just off Skipton Road. So we crawled the length of Skipton Road to the church. Every minute that cars in front of us were going slower than 30 miles an hour, I was like eating my fingernails. And I walk into the church, quarter to two. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. And, uh, and there's two very flustered women. And they're like, are you Adam? And I said, yes. And they went, thank God. I said, I'm so sorry. I thought it was 2.30. And they went, no. Anyway, they mic'd me up and I went and met the vicar and got talked through everything. And I sat down just as the bridesmaid and the bride arrived at the back of church and no one even knew until I told you all today. So, uh, You know, sometimes we expect God to speak very clearly, maybe through prophetically gifted people. Sometimes just the drop of a thought into your head is enough, and the Lord is prompting us. And so there's lesson number one for this morning. If the thought appears in your head and you're like, that seems far too clever or far too considerate for me, just maybe it's the Lord. And uh, I'll leave that with you. Um, We're continuing our series. We're coming very close to the end of our series in 1 John. A quick recap for you. He's basically spent four chapters so far encouraging his readers in the face of some conflict. Some people have left the church. They're saying Jesus is one thing. The people in the church are saying Jesus is another thing. And he's encouraging them. And he's pointed out again and again and again three key signs of a Christian. Anybody confident they could put up their hand And tell me one of those three key signs of a Christian from what we've learned so far in 1 John. Just test, you'll test. Anyone at all? Yes. Love. Yes. 
John has been going repeatedly about loving God and loving one another. Love is the first. The second two are slightly harder, but I'll give you a go. Anyone fancy it? Would you like me to give you the answer? You know, contact with God. I'm going to give you that, Zaki. Belief in God. Yes. Excellent job. So we've got love of God and other people. We've got belief. And there's a third one. It's a word we don't like very much, generally in life. Children dislike it the most. Obedience. Yes. Yes. These are the three signs he's been going repeatedly on. Love, belief, and obedience. And at the start of today's passage, the beginning of chapter 5, he's going to tie them all together for us. You're going to notice that. Then we're going to go into a new section. And it's a brief section. And in this section, John is wanting to talk about who is Jesus. Because remember, that is the crux of the issue between the two groups who have fallen out in the church. And my title today is Confident Faith, because John wants the people in the church to be confident that they know Jesus. And my prayer for this morning is that we would all leave this place confident in our faith as well. Are you ready? If you've got a Bible, why don't you turn to 1 John chapter 5. Um, it will come on the slide too. Everyone who believes, belief, that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves, love, the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. Three signs, love, belief, and obedience. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Love, belief, obedience ties it all together. New section. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. I'm going to explain this in a minute, don't worry. A bit confusing. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth, for there are three that testify. And it's useful to know here that in the Old Testament for the Jews, for a testimony to believe, you needed two or three witnesses. So he's making a big deal. He's like, there's three that testify. Come on, we know it's true. There are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given us about his son. Whoever believes in the son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony that God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. 
It's a bit of a confusing passage. I will try and explain some of it for you. A few years ago, a friend of mine who leads a church in a northern city with a university in it took a group from his church out to the university campus and they asked the students there one question. They said, if you had one objection, what is your number one objection to the Christian faith? Why don't you believe? And they asked a a number of students, and they were very surprised about the number one answer. I was very surprised by the number one answer when my friend was telling me about it. You see, they were expecting, and I was expecting, that the students on the campus might talk about suffering. There's just too much suffering in the world for there to be a God of love. It's very common. Maybe you've heard that from friends or family. I thought, if it's not suffering, it's probably, what about all the other gods? Surely Christianity can't be the only true one. Not that one either. I thought maybe, slightly pessimistically, it would be Christians have put me off. Maybe you've heard that one too. I've met some Christians, they're hypocrites. Maybe you think that this morning. Maybe you're a Christian and you think that this morning. And I would have gone for one of those three if I were a betting man. But the number one answer had double any of those. And the number one answer was this. There is not enough evidence. Ooh, thank you, Lucy. That was my response too. Ooh, I'm surprised that that is their answer. Twice as many students said, the reason I don't believe in Christianity is there is not enough evidence than suffering, other religions, Christians being hypocrites, or any other answer you may care to give. And it may be that you're here this morning and you're, here with family, or you're at church checking it out, trying to work out what's going on. Maybe that's your opinion too. Maybe you think, are you sure there's enough evidence for this God of love that you've all just been singing to? And if that's where you would find yourself this morning, I hope this would be a helpful morning to you. It got me thinking, of course, because I think when I'm asked, and when I notice other Christians being asked, why are you a Christian? Why do you believe? Normally, Our answer focuses more on it helps me than that it's true. Do you think that's fair to say? What would you say if someone said, why do you believe? Maybe you'd say, it gives me peace. I just know it in my heart. Maybe you'd say, well, God really helps me in hard times. It works for me. But John... And the students on that campus, that's not enough. John wants you to know it's true. And I'm going to spend a few minutes this morning talking about the reasons that we can be confident that it's true. I'm going to do it by, first of all, talking through by water, by blood and by the spirit, because that's a little bit confusing. It seems that John is arguing with some people who have left the church in this bit. I think that's what's going on. And he's saying Jesus didn't come by water only. And this phrase by water is the one he uses for John the Baptist. He's really talking, I think, here about baptism. Jesus didn't come by water only. He didn't only come baptizing people, telling them to repent and turn around and live a different life. It seems that everyone agreed that in the church. Just some of them thought that's all he did. And they fell out and those people left the church. He said he didn't only come by water. And I think, actually, if we were to ask people on the streets of Harrogate or the people that you know in your life, 
what do you think about Jesus? Most of them would be perfectly happy with him coming by water. They would say, yes, Jesus was a good teacher. He was a nice guy. And he walked around and he told people, be kind to each other. And his teaching has changed the world. That's what they'd say, and they'd be pretty happy with us all believing that. Jesus came by water. And the students that my friend spoke to, and maybe you here today as well, might be surprised to hear that there is very, very good evidence for that belief. You can go to the British Library, you can read manuscripts from three Roman historians, not Christians, all from that first century who write about Jesus or Christians from the years straight after he lived. They're called Tacitus, which is a great name for a child if you're pregnant in the room. Suetonius, which is even better. And the third one's called Pliny the Younger. I don't know what happened to Pliny the Older, but Pliny the Younger wrote loads of stuff, and we've got some manuscripts of it, and he's talking about how do I deal with Christians? They seem to be pretty weird. All from the first century AD. Three Roman historians. There's also a Jewish historian. He's called Josephus, and he writes about Jesus too. So we've got four documents from the people that we know the most about the world in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, they're our source for loads of information. And they all talk about how Jesus existed, and he taught, and he had followers. And we haven't even talked about the New Testament yet, which is in itself historic evidence. Jesus definitely existed. There's loads of evidence for it. In fact, more evidence for Jesus existing than for any other event 2,000 years ago. Bold claim. But it's true. But John says, it's not just that I want you to know that Jesus came by water. It's not just that he existed, not just that he taught. You've got to know Jesus also came by blood. He didn't just come by water. He came by blood. He died. And most people that would agree Jesus existed probably aren't going to argue with you that he also died. It's like the ultimate statistic. One in one dies. 100%. But the question is not, did he die? But what was the significance of his death? Did Jesus just come telling people to love each other, or did he come loving the world and giving up his life as an atoning sacrifice, as we heard last week? The blood that poured from his wrists and from his ankles and from his side as he hung on the cross, did it accomplish anything? Or was it just a brutal way to die? And John has already told us that it is the blood of Jesus that purifies us from all sin. He wants the church to know, no, he didn't just come telling you to be nice to each other. He came and died a death that washes your sin away. That means you can know total forgiveness. That you can be washed cleaner than you could ever be cleaned by water, by the blood of Jesus. He came by water and he came by blood. And for this, he calls on his third witness, the Spirit, and he says, you know this is true because the Spirit inside you, the Spirit of truth, tells you it's true. You know it. It's brought you peace. You've experienced forgiveness. You know what that feels like. And maybe that's the case for you this morning. Maybe it's not, and actually it's news to you that he has come by blood and that the Spirit confirms it inside of us. John says he came by water, by blood, and by the Spirit. 
But then he pulls out his trump card. He says there's a fourth testimony. You've believed my testimony, a human, an eyewitness. Do you remember week one? John says, we saw him with our own eyes. We touched him, Jesus, remember? You believed my testimony, but there's another testimony that's greater. It's greater because it's God's, and God is greater. And this is his testimony. God's testimony about Jesus is life. It's eternal life. It's that he, by his power, raised Jesus from the dead, never to die again. The water testifies, the blood testifies, the spirit testifies, but greater than the lot is the testimony of God that Jesus rose from the dead. It's a big claim, I know. And the students that my friend spoke to on that university campus would likely be astonished by the fact that I want to say to you, there is very good evidence as we look at history that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And I want us all to be aware of this evidence because do you know what the world around us likes to tell us that we're a little bit silly. It likes to make fun of Christians for believing things like that somebody would come back from the dead or that miracles might happen today. But friends, there is good evidence for God's testimony about Jesus that he rose from the dead. And in about 10 minutes, I'm going to fly through it this morning. And by the end, you will be convinced. Whether right now you're convinced or not, This is my bold statement, and this is my aim. Are you ready? This is what we know to start. Jesus lived. I've already demonstrated that from the histories. That he taught people that he was crucified by the Romans under Pontius Pilate. That is history from beyond the Bible. We know that on the third day, his followers, they went to the tomb, and it was empty. And that was where they started to say he'd come back from the dead. More than that, many of them began to say, we have seen the resurrected Jesus. We have the empty tomb and we have eyewitness accounts. Both stand as historical reality. In fact, 500 people at one time claim to have seen the resurrected Jesus amongst them. Did you know that? Tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to look logically at the events of that Sunday 2,000 years ago. And it's a key part for me as a teenager of coming to faith. And it may be a key moment for you here this morning as well in either cementing your faith or bringing you to trust in Jesus. So let's look. I've got seven possibilities. I could pad them out slightly. There's a bit of variety that exists, but I've made them the major ones. That mean we're going to touch on the important things. There is number one, the resurrection was made up by later Christians. Number two, the disciples stole the body of Jesus and then lied about the appearances. Number three, the authorities stole the body of Jesus. Number four, no laughter. The women went to the wrong tomb. On East, I said no laughter on Easter morning. Number five, the appearances were hallucinations. Number six, Jesus didn't actually die and appeared having recovered in the tomb. Number seven, Jesus supernaturally rose from the dead. If the tomb was empty and hundreds of people reported seeing Jesus, these are the suggestions throughout history of what happened on that Sunday morning. And we're going to go through them one by one. And I'm going to leave you with my perception of what's gone on. Sherlock Holmes says, once you've ruled out everything that is impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. And I offer you that as our plan for this morning. So number one, the resurrection is a legend made up by later Christians. 
Look, I've already listed Tacitus, Suetonius, Pliny the Younger, and Josephus as evidence that he existed. The first line written of the first book written after the resurrection of Jesus is probably Galatians 1, chapter 1, written, we think, in AD 49, 16 years after the resurrection of Jesus. This is what it says. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. The earliest line that we have written says God raised Jesus from the dead. Some people would have you think that the whole New Testament was written in about 1400 AD as a power play. Those people are denying the pure facts of historical documentation. They are wrong. We have explosive growth of the church in the immediate years after Jesus. And they said Jesus rose from the dead and that they saw him. The resurrection was not added in later by Christians. Number two, the disciples stole the body and then lied about the appearances. I want to start by saying that the tomb of Jesus was guarded by four professional Roman soldiers. Have we got any Roman soldiers in the building this morning? No. What you need to know about Roman soldiers is that they were big, fat, killing machines. They were professionals. They were not scared. They were well-drilled. They knew what they were doing. The second thing you need to know is that on the day of Jesus' crucifixion, the disciples were disillusioned, disheartened, and scattered. They had fled. Only one remained at the cross, John, whose letter we're reading today. What could possibly have caused the 11 remaining disciples to suddenly regroup, reappear, and start boldly proclaiming that Jesus has risen from the dead if it wasn't true. Friends, they had given up. But on that Sunday, everything changed. And it's worth bearing in mind for a moment that none of them got rich. People lie to get rich, don't they? None of them got powerful, and people lie to get powerful. No, what happened as a result of this lie is that they got a target painted on them. They were hunted, attacked, and brutally murdered. It might shock you to know this, but I have lied in my life. So is the person next to you. Look at them if you like. It's what a liar looks like. (laughs) But every single time I've lied in my life, it's to make my life easier. It's to make my life more comfortable. It's to be advantageous to myself. I have never lied in order to get myself a beating. And don't forget, of course, that there are four professional Roman soldiers guarding the tomb that they would have to have beaten. Chuck Colson was a chief advisor to President Nixon in America. And he ended up going to prison for his role in the Watergate scandal. For some of you, this is your national history. You know far more about it than me. You can give everyone an education later if you like. But before he went to prison, he became a Christian. And this is what he says about the suggestion that the disciples were all in on a lie. My personal experience in the Watergate scandal convinces me of the historic proof of the resurrection. 
The most powerful men around the president of the United States could not keep a lie for three weeks. And you'd have me believe that the 12 apostles gave their lives for a lie impossible. It's a ridiculous suggestion. Number three, the authorities stole the body. Well, look, the local authorities weren't particularly delighted about Christianity. They set about trying to kill the Christians. If they had stolen the body, all they'd have to have done to stop Christianity in its tracks would have been to produce the body. But they didn't, because they didn't have the body, because they hadn't stolen the body. And even if they had, it still doesn't explain the resurrection appearances. Option number four, the women went to the wrong tomb on Easter morning. The ladies had been to the tomb on Friday evening. It is now dawn on Sunday morning, 36 hours later. The women return from the tomb they visited and they tell the disciples about it. Peter and John then have a foot race, my favorite part of the whole Bible, where they race to the tomb. John wants you to know he got there first, but Peter went inside. He was a bit scared. So this also requires the men to go to the wrong tomb, those of you who laughed earlier on. The problem is the story is also very clear about the location of the tomb. It was the previously unused one in Joseph of Arimathea's garden. I imagine there weren't many Joseph of Arimathea's in Jerusalem at the time, and if there were, they probably didn't all have unused tombs. It wasn't in a maze of a cemetery. It wasn't difficult to find. Finally, as Christianity then began to spread because they said the tomb was empty, if there were still a body in a tomb somewhere, surely the authorities that be would just have pointed out that there was still a tomb with the decomposing body of Jesus in it, shut Christianity down in its tracks. Friends, they didn't do that. And they didn't do it because the women went to the correct tomb, as did the men after them, and it was empty. And note, again, just for argument's sake, that it also provides no explanation of the resurrection appearances. Just saying. As a slight aside, the very fact that women were the first to the resurrection is a feature. You not know that in the first century, women were reliable. They weren't trusted. In fact, a woman could not stand up in court and give testimony because how could she ever know? Shocking, I know. But Jesus decides to give great dignity to the women by appearing to them first and asking them to be the first witnesses to his resurrection. Mary goes and tells the disciples. But maybe you would never have had the first witness as a woman because no one would believe you. You might think that's very clever storytelling. It's just stories like that didn't exist in the first century AD. It's a later invention. Interesting thing to note. The fact the first witnesses were women adds a huge weight of authenticity to the resurrection stories. Number five, the appearances were hallucinations. Lots of people would say, look, it was probably just religious delusion. They were delirious because they were so sad at the death of Jesus. 
It's just you've got to remember they weren't expecting him to rise from the dead. It was a surprise to them. They were so stupid they didn't realize that every time he told them he was going to do it, they didn't get it. And I'm not an expert on the human brain, but I have read a bit about it because I like to answer people who talk about these being hallucinations. And what I've read says this, no two people can have the same hallucination. Two people cannot share a hallucination, and the odds of them having a similar one are astronomical because it is entirely dependent on what goes inside one person's head. Let me tell you about the appearances. Count with me if you like, because I'm going to need my hands. This is number one. Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. I need some fingers in the air, please. One. He then appeared to the women returning from the tomb. Two. He then appeared to Peter later on the same day. He appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to the apostles without Thomas. He appeared to the apostles with Thomas. Then he appeared to seven of them by the lake of Tiberias where he cooked them fish. Ever heard of that happening? in a hallucination. Then he appeared to 500 of them at one time. Then it says he appeared to James, his brother. He appeared to the 11 of them at the ascension before rising into the sky and being hidden by the clouds. Then it says he appeared to the apostle Paul. If they are hallucinations, then what we have on our hands, friends, are miracles hundreds of times greater than a man rising from the dead. The resurrection appearances could not have been hallucinations. It is impossible. If you believe that, you believe something far more miraculous than that Jesus is who he said he was and that he rose from the grave. Option number six is that Jesus didn't actually die. This was really popular, early 20th century, late 19th century. He was just like really badly injured. And then they put him in the tomb and the cold revived him because freezing cold tombs do that to people apparently. Uh, and then he came out of the tomb and managed to convince everyone that he died and come back to life. This was very popular. It had a name. It's called the swoon theory. He swooned and then got up again. Let me fill in some blanks for you. The swoon theory assumes that a man who had been beaten within an inch of his life, whose back was torn to shreds, from the bone and metal in the whip they'd used to flog him, who had been too weak to carry the crossbeam to the crucifixion site, who had had big fat nails put through both wrists, both ankles, and a spear shoved in his side, who had hung on a cross for six hours in the heat of day, had then been taken down, tightly wrapped in linen, before being placed in a tomb without any food or drink, and that over the course of 18 hours had managed to unwrap himself, get up from his bed, move a stone that weighed one and a half tons, fight and cause a Roman guard of at least four professionally trained soldiers who were killing machines to flee, before convincing the disciples and many others that he had come back to life. Forty days later, he ascended into the sky and was hidden by a cloud. It's frankly ludicrous. The Roman soldiers who killed him were professionals. They spent their lives doing it, and the deal was this. If they got someone down from the cross who was not dead, and that person escaped, they got killed in his place. 
They would never have got somebody down from the cross without them being dead. That's why they went around breaking the legs of the other prisoners. They made sure their victims were dead. They knew their victims were dead. And we know Jesus was dead whilst he hung on the cross because of a fascinating insight. John, as I already said, was the only disciple who remained at the cross. And he includes one detail that none of the other gospel writers did. He says that a Roman soldier pierced Jesus' side with a spear. You know this bit? And what comes out? Water and blood. Why is that interesting? Well, it's because we now know that that's the separation of clot and serum, which happens when you die. It's just they didn't know that 2,000 years ago. It was discovered later. We have an eyewitness account of a sign of death that they didn't realize was a sign of death, which happened whilst Jesus was still on the cross. Friends, Jesus died on the cross. To believe anything other than that Jesus died on the cross denies history and logic. And so we are left with one option. Number seven. Jesus supernaturally rose from the dead. There was a man called Lord Darling, which, quite frankly, I would be delighted if it was my name. Lord Darling. He was a Queen's Bench judge for many decades. He deputized as the Lord Chief Justice, which is the most senior legal position in the United Kingdom during World War I. And he wrote about the resurrection, and this, friends, is what he said. In its favor, as living truth, there exists such overwhelming evidence, positive and negative, factual and circumstantial, that no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection is true. Now, title today, Confident Faith. And my heart is, for those of us in the room who are Christians, that we would feel a little bit more confident in what we believe, having looked through what we've seen today, the testimony of water, blood, spirit, and of God in raising Jesus from the dead. But John has a greater aim in mind. This was his aim. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. John wants you and I to know not that Jesus definitely rose from the dead so we can feel confident and maybe win an argument sometime. He doesn't want us to know that Jesus definitely rose from the dead so that we can feel a bit cocky and think other people are stupid and that Christians are the smartest. That's not his aim at all. His aim is that Christians would know this, that Jesus is the prize. That Jesus is the one in whom life in all its fullness is found. And that life is only found in Jesus. You know, God raised Jesus from the dead, and it means that the life that is in him now endures through death. It's a life which is alive to God because that's where Jesus has now gone. In his resurrection life, he's at the right hand of God the Father. It's the life that overcomes the world. Paul stands in Athens and he says this about the resurrection. God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice 
by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. John wants you to know that you can have life. And that if you have Jesus, you have life. There is nothing else worth having. You have a life that will endure through the grave. You have a life which brings you near to God. You have a life which enables you to live the new life that Jesus called us to by water. That means that the blood of Jesus has utterly transformed your being and that the Holy Spirit lives in you and testifies in your heart that Jesus really did die for your sin and really is now alive always for you. Friends, my prayer for you, if you believe in Jesus here this morning, is that you would be able to breathe in and breathe out and know that you have life. That there is nothing greater because you have Jesus. There is peace and rest available to your heart and that striving is no longer necessary. You already have eternal life. He loves you. You are his and he is yours. And if you're here this morning and maybe you related to the students I was talking about earlier, maybe you say, hey, I'm not sure there was enough proof. Uh, Maybe I've challenged you this morning. Maybe something else that's gone on this morning in this room has made you think, wow, actually, maybe Jesus is worth placing my trust in. Maybe this life that could be found in Jesus is something I want. I want to tell you, it's a free gift. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the one born of God, you get it. And the Spirit comes and causes your heart to well up with love for God. You know, we weren't stirring it up this morning, those of us worshipping. No, God had done it by his Spirit. He helps us to worship him. And my invitation to you, if that's you this morning, you came here not knowing what you believed. You came here perhaps skeptical about this whole thing you were coming to. You weren't sure if there was truth to the Christian faith or not. I want to suggest to you, there are very good reasons based in history for believing in the Christian faith. Very good reasons indeed. But far greater than the reasons is the life that you get in Jesus Christ. And I want to give you the invitation, it may be this morning, that you want to accept that offer of life from Jesus. We're going to sing to finish, and it's be a good moment for the band to come up. Can I invite you, if you're able, to rise to your feet? I'd like to pray for us um, before we do sing. And I want to pray two things. I want to pray, number one, for you here this morning, if you are a believer, that you would have peace in the life that you have from God. And I want to pray secondly, if you here this morning are challenged and you say, do you know what, I want that life. I want to pray for you and give you the opportunity to pray for yourself that you may receive life from Jesus. So if it's okay with everyone, can I invite you to close your eyes? If you think you might want life from Jesus, maybe tell him, I think I might want life from you. If you're needing peace this morning, 
from the life that comes from Jesus, why not tell him, Lord, I need peace. And Father, I pray, thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Thank you that you caused men to write down their eyewitness experience of Jesus, that he did come by water, teaching about a new life, creating the opportunity to live differently. That he did come by blood, that we may know forgiveness for sins. That he did send his spirit, that we may have an inner witness confirming to us that it is true. But that more than any of that, God testified through his mighty power by raising Jesus from the grave, that everything he said is true and that we can have life that goes through death. Life that's richer than anything else. Lord, I pray for believers in this room that they would know peace and rest as a result. I pray now as they breathe in and breathe out, you would bring rest to their souls, utter confidence in Jesus. And I pray for those here this morning who aren't sure. I pray for those for whom life from Jesus sounds attractive. I pray for those who came here not sure there was enough evidence, but challenged by what they've heard. And Lord, I pray that they would be confident to reach out and accept your offer of life. And if that's you here this morning, I want to invite you on your own. No one else knows. Just pray right now. Say, God, I'm reaching out my hand because I want this gift of life that you offer. I receive Jesus. Come into my life. I know I need his death. I know I need forgiveness. I know I need life, which is better than what I've got. I come to you to receive it. And if that's where you find yourself today, I would love to talk to you afterwards. I'm not going to ask you to do anything right now, but please don't leave without talking to me or the person you've come with. If you're here with a friend or family member, we would love to talk to you some more about Jesus. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love you to get off to the best start you possibly can in that gift of life, which he offers you.